This week's episode hits a little different. For instance, there is death, but there's no murder. There are crimes, but no justice. That, well, that's that's kind of typical for this show. Uh, but there are victims, but they are also the perpetrators. That's right. I know y'all confused as hell, but that's all right. Because I'm about to explain the strange story of the Collier brothers and how they motivated terrified children everywhere to clean their rooms. <laughs> I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. Of course, what else would it be? That's what I called it. Sometimes you say the dumbest stuff, I swear. God, I could just pre-plan the things I'm going to say. Just jumping on the mic. Herman Collier and Susie Frost were first cousins, who came from a wealthy white family in New York. Herman became a gynecologist, and Susie was an opera singer, of course. The two married around 1880 and had three children. Herman was known as an eccentric man. He used to take a canoe to work every day. He would carry his canoe through his wealthy Harlem neighborhood and paddle across the water to Bellevue Hospital which is still in operation today, boasting it as America's oldest operating hospital and one of its largest still. The Colliers were known to be very eccentric family in general, but they were also known for being very wealthy. Their first child was born in 1880, but she only lived to be four months old before passing. The cause of her death is unrecorded. Then their first son was born a year later, They named him Homer, and he was followed by another son in 1885, whose name was Langley. Homer proved to be somewhat of a child prodigy, earning a bachelor's degree by the age of 20 from Columbia University. He studied law and had a successful career. Langley claims he studied engineering at Columbia University. I couldn't find anything to confirm that. He was also a very skilled pianist, allegedly playing at Carnegie Hall. But Langley left performing as a pianist to instead sell pianos, believe it or not, opening his own business and being pretty damn good at it. Of course, when you have money, it's kind of hard to fail, right? In 1909, Herman moved the family into a brownstone apartment in Harlem, which at the time was an up-and-coming, rich, mostly white neighborhood. But in 1919, Herman and Susie separated. Herman moved out of the brownstone apartment and into a home on his own, leaving Susie and the boys in the three-story apartment building all alone. Herman died four years later, in 1923, and he left all his belongings to his sons, Homer and Langley, and they moved all their father's belongings from his house into the apartment with them, including their father's Model T car. The car had been parked in the basement, and it's it's unclear really how it got there, but it's not unclear how it ended up in the apartment. Langley took the Model T apart to transport it and rebuilt it inside the home. Although when I looked into this, this is not really that crazy. You know, because when you're talking about the first car, uh, I don't think garages were a big thing. So people wanted to protect these. I'm sure car theft was very high when you could run up and crank the crank on the front of the radiator and just take off, right? But anyways, um, 
I guess his dad took it apart to put it in the basement as well. That's what I would that's what I would guess. But he claimed later that the reason he brought the car inside though, Langley, speaking of Langley, was to use the engine to generate electricity. And his father could have been doing that in the basement of his home. So, something to think about. Susie Frost Collier died later in 1929, leaving all of her possessions, including the brownstone apartment, to her two sons. And for a while, the men lived pretty normal lives. Homer worked as a real estate insurance salesman, and Langley did pretty well in the piano selling business. It also helped that they had received a generous inheritance from their parents when they passed. They even used to teach Sunday school at the local church. Nothing seemed abnormal. Well, at least outwardly at this time. But with the death of their mother also came the death of America's golden age. Not because of her. Just so happened. But it was the beginning of the Great Depression. Many of the wealthy white families that once occupied the Harlem neighborhood were now gone, along with their wealth. What followed was an influx of poor black families. The dynamics and demographics of the area completely changed, almost overnight. With the hard times of the Great Depression affecting so many people, crimes in the Harlem area grew. And with it, the Collier's fear of the outside world started to grow as well. Homer left his insurance job around 1932, after he lost his eyesight apparently from hemorrhaging around his eyes, caused by a stroke. Just a year before, he had purchased the property across the street in hopes of building and operating apartment buildings for an alternative income source. However, with the loss of his eyesight came the loss of so much more, including all of their income sources. Langley quit his job to help care for his brother, closing up his piano business and retreating into the apartment, only venturing out after midnight. Langley claims this was for safety, as he believed he was less likely to be robbed then. I disagree. <laughs> he would carry a box with him and collect old newspapers and anything that piqued his interest, like tin cans or old rusty bird cages or kids' chairs, basically anything thrown out on the sidewalk that was free for the taking. He also reportedly walked up to six hours to the next town to buy the cheapest bread, he would collect food from dumpsters and grocers that were tossing the old discarded food out. Also, all the water, electricity, and heat had all been cut off at the house from a failure to pay the bills. They turned to getting water from a park a few blocks down the road, heating the spaces they occupied with kerosene lamps, and attempting to get electricity from various alternative means, including the attempt with the Model T, and another with a vacuum for pianos. Um... Both were unsuccessful. This odd and almost sudden change of behavior had people talking, and suspicions growing. The town began to whisper at why the men had retreated and why they had started to board up all their windows and doors. What were they hiding? They were known to be from a rich family and to have had a very good business at the time. People knew they had money. However, Langley would dress in old torn clothes that were held together by pins. The brothers gave every indication of what was going on inside the home. But ironically, this just led people to believe in the riches even more. Thinking he only did these things to convince people that he was poor. No one knows for sure why he did this. As the brothers were not by any means poor. 
In fact, a lot of the brothers' problems came from the simple fact that people believed they were richer than they actually were. Okay, so are you confused? So here's the thing. They weren't poor, but they were fine. Okay, let's put it that way. Uh, they, I mean, they weren't rich, but they were fine. They were somewhat well-off, but they were nowhere near the riches that just were being built up in the lore surrounding this <laughs> giant cage that they were trapping themselves in. The crowds began to grow. People would stand outside the brothers' home and discuss how men were sitting there, just lying around on their stacks of cash, surrounded by riches from around the world. How they distrusted banks, so they kept everything inside the apartment. Of course, this didn't help the already paranoid brothers, and after a group of teens broke the windows and a few unsuccessful attempts to rob the apartment, Langley was fed up. He had grown very protective of his brother, who was now also paralyzed. Jesus, this guy, he got... I mean, your parents were cousins, though, right? Apparently, due to uh, rheumatism, though, that's why he was paralyzed. And he needed around-the-clock assistance. Now, a lot of these things these men have, or had, sorry, uh, is self-diagnosed. These guys, like I said, their their father was in the medical field. He was a gynecologist. They they were very they were very intelligent. They had a very elaborate library in their home with lots of medical books and whatnot. Um, and these guys thought themselves qualified enough to diagnose themselves. So Langley is doing a lot of the diagnosing of his brother here, um, who is now blind and paralyzed. So he boarded up the windows and he barricaded the doors shut with piles of newspapers and anything else he could get his hands on. He started rigging booby traps inside the home and refusing to let anyone in to see or speak to Homer. In 1939, workers from the gas company were sent to the Brownstone apartment to retrieve gas meters that hadn't been used for over 11 years. A confrontation between Langley and the workers ensued, but he reluctantly let them in after the police arrived. Three years later, in 1942... Langley was interviewed again. This time, it was after the bank had threatened to foreclose on the home for lack of payment. Here, he revealed to the world the way the men lived. He told the reporter that inflammatory rheumatism had caused Homer's paralysis, though this was never confirmed by a doctor. He also explained that they would seek not seek medical help because they distrusted doctors. Langley knew if Homer were to see a doctor, they would remove his optic nerve, making him blind permanently. And that could have actually been the case at the time. You know, these guys, they don't sound all that crazy, but they are crazy. Let's move on. Uh, but they would prescribe medications for his rheumatism. He was, not, he was not down for that. Medicine that would surely shorten his brother's life. They were surrounded by their father's old medical books and research, and Langley believed with diet and rest he could cure his brother. You know, diet and rest can cure a lot, but I don't think it can cure blindness or rheumatism. But not a doctor. But here's what the diet was, okay? It consisted of 100 oranges a week, along with a loaf of black bread and peanut butter. He also gave insight to why they had accumulated so many newspapers. Over the years, he said he collected them so when Homer was better, he could see again and could catch up on the news. 
Though the brothers did listen to a radio show quite often, so they weren't completely cut off from the world. Let me break down this diet real quick. 100 oranges a week. So he's like, if I just keep giving you vitamin C, you'll pull through, right? The bread is probably because it's cheap. And then the peanut butter for protein. I mean, he's not crazy, I guess, but you just need so much more, right? Especially when you're blind and have rheumatism. But Langley spoke of how he was responsible for bathing and cooking for Homer. He was a full-time caregiver for his brother and believed that he was doing the best for him. He talks of reading to Homer because the house contained so many books. But since his eyesight was not too good anymore either, and it was so dark in the home, mostly he played piano for his brother now. Or they just sat and talked and listened to the radio. He also talked about how he would paint images that Homer would describe when he first lost his sight. How Homer would see large buildings surrounded by red hues, and he would attempt to paint them and how he was saving them for when his brother could hopefully see again. The article brought a lot of pity to the story of the odd reclusive brothers, and that seemed almost like a ghost story at this point. However, the article had unintended drawbacks. Since the Colliers had not made a payment on the house in months. Yikes. Crews from the bank were finally sent to clean and gut the house so it could be auctioned off. But when they arrived and began to pull stuff out of the yard, Langley started shouting at them from the second floor window. And once again, police were forced to intervene. Police attempted to enter the home by busting down the front door, but were met with a wall of newspapers and other objects that completely blocked the entrance. When they were finally able to breach the home, it was through a second story window. They then removed enough of the clutter for an officer to climb into the clearing. And there he found Langley standing silent. Without a word, he took out his checkbook and wrote a check for the remaining balance of the home. He handed it to the officer and then demanded that they all leave at once. Angry at the intrusion and seeing how easily the men were able to enter the home, yeah, easily, Langley went to work filling the first floor with even more newspapers and anything else he could find, filling it literally wall to wall, ceiling to floor. By around 1945, it was normal for police to receive calls and complaints about the Collier House, pretty much on a weekly basis, either to complain about the mess of trash that was spilling out onto the streets, or the smell of rat and cat urine that basically polluted the entire city block. The police had to come to the home with genuine concern, because no one had seen or heard from Homer in years. And so... A very reluctant Langley escorted an officer up to see Homer's nest. I'm using this with extreme quotes. The officer said it took half an hour for him and Langley to navigate the small and narrow tunnels while having to avoid setting off traps. Just to get to the second floor where Homer sat on the edge of a cot, completely surrounded by rubbish, in a burrow-like fashion. The malnourished man sat almost folded in half on the bed, with his knees tucked under his chin. His glazed-over white eyes seemed to peer right through you. And the deep voice that shook from deep within him said, I am Homer Collier, the lawyer, and I am not dead. I want your name and your shield number. Right. So, so Homer... His and Langley's intent was to file a complaint with the police department regarding the intrusion. 
And they did, but nothing was ever followed up on. They had every right to check on him at that point, right? On March 21st, 1947, another tip was called into the police station. This time from a man claiming to be Charles Smith. Could be him. I don't know. Could be his real name. Who knows? Who cares? And he said, I think you should check on the Collier house because I believe someone inside may be dead and rotting. As recently, the smell of decomposition had started just wafting out of the brownstone apartment, according to Charles Smith. So, reluctantly, an officer headed out to the, no- the old location, knocked on the door, fully prepared to deal with old, angry, creepy Langley. It was almost routine by now. Stand here, let Langley lull on about how this was their home and they had every right to be here and couldn't be pushed out, and how everybody just needed to mind their business and blah, blah, blah. Just stand here and let them yell, then I can go back to my regular duties and leave this behind till the next tip comes in, right? But this time was different. The officer knocked and yelled and attempted to make contact with anyone inside, but no one answered. An entire team was sent to the apartment to try and get inside, and with it came an entire city block of onlookers, hoping to get a peek into the secret dragon's stash of cash. What they found, though, was just a sad reality. The crew was forced to use ladders to reach and break through a second-story window. Then they spent two hours pulling out enough of the rubble just so someone could finally make it through. When they did, they found Homer Collier, sitting in a chair, with his knees pulled up below his chin, just as he had been years before when the officer checked on him. His body was emaciated and covered with only a tattered bathrobe, his glazed-over eyes still open but beginning to sink into his skull. It was a haunting sight that traumatized the men who saw it. Eventually, it was determined that Homer had been dead for 10 hours at the time of his discovery, and the cause of death had been starvation and heart failure. The police attempted to locate Langley, but no one was able to find him, so an officer was stationed outside of the home to wait. They assumed Langley had been the one who called the police and then had hid and waited for everyone to clear out. However, that was not the case. Langley didn't return home even after all the curious onlookers had gone home. So they put out a statewide alert, thinking that perhaps Langley was going to leave with the rest of his wealth after he'd just let his brother starve to death. By this time, people had heard about the Odd Brothers and their mysterious trove hidden behind Harlem walls. They'd heard of Langley's eccentric habits and lifestyle, and so tips started flooding in. He was spotted everywhere leading to a search that stretched across nine states, but all these leads turned out to be falsehoods. And when Langley failed to show for Homer's funeral, officials started looking into the possibility that maybe Langley was still in the apartment as well. The search turned inward. Crews began to tear the once-magnificent apartment home down, starting from top to bottom. They were forced to break skylights to enter the home and throw trash down to the streets from the third floor. This grew crowds of hundreds every day, people just waiting to get a look at what the Colliers had so held so dear behind all those locks and barricades. The entire first floor had been covered wall to wall and ceiling to floor with almost everything you could think of, including 14 pianos, some grand, some upright, from when Langley had closed his business to care for Homer, of course, and there was tons of other instruments as well, 
There were jars of preserved organs, full skeletons, and over 25,000 medical books and an old x-ray machine, all of which they had inherited from their father. Every possession left to them by their mother, and they also had tons and tons of trash and newspapers. Obviously. Stockpiles of used cans, there was a horse's jawbone, too many books to count, half of a horse carriage, you know, who doesn't, right, have one laying around, all types of furniture, paintings, and unused fabrics, sewing machines, all kinds of shit. Very little of what the Colliers had stashed away was actually valuable. Most of it was deemed junk and was sent to the local landfill. However, anything worth value was auctioned off, ranking in a whopping $2,000. Right? But that's, right, 1930s. So it's, or 1940s, I'm sorry, at this point. Seems like a lot of money, right? It's about 24000 today. $24,000 in a three-story apartment. That's uh, what their stuff valued as. In total, 120 tons of rubbish was removed from the Brownstone apartment. Workers found out that there were parts of the home actually being supported and held up by the trash, resulting in one worker falling through the floor from the third story. After about two weeks of cleaning out the home with still no sign of Langley, the source of the horrible stench was finally located. Just ten feet from where Homer had died, his brother's half-rat-eaten putrefied corpse was there. He was covered by several heavy objects and inside of a two-foot-wide tunnel. Through investigation, it was concluded that when Langley was crawling through the tunnel to bring his brother food, he accidentally set off one of his own traps, one that was designed to crush and smother anyone who attempted to invade their home and dared to make it this far. A trap designed to keep Homer safe ultimately led to both of the brothers' demise. Langley had died of asphyxiation. He had laid just feet away from his brother, who was unable to move, and he had died all alone. Then Homer was left alone to just sit and wait for death to overcome him as well. They suffered tragic and preventable deaths, but also died just as they wanted to live, left alone to be surrounded by only themselves and their stuff to keep them company. Where others would have found suffocation and isolation, the brothers found freedom and liberation. Why they sought solace and comfort in such a smothering way, though, is very unclear. Many speculate that the brothers were just so sheltered as children that they were left cowering inside their homes and paranoid and afraid until all that was left was to wait for death's relief. I don't know. Could the media be to blame as well? as they were the ones to sensationalize the abundant wealth that the men sat on and hoarded, which in turn caused actual harm to come to them in the end. Or was it more so mental illness that led to compulsive hoarding? Did one or all of the colliers suffer from OCD or some other syndrome that would hinder, that would, that would hinder clear and rational thinking when it came to discarding old and useless trash, at least? or possible traumas they faced that caused a disorder to form. We really don't know. I mean, we know the mental capabilities of the medical field in the 1940s weren't too great, right? You were either crazy or you weren't. 
Well, after the brothers passed and the home finally emptied, many relatives, I use this with quotes, came forward to try and lay claim to the estate, leading it to be split among almost 30 people. I guess they just took everybody's word for it. Yeah, yeah, sure, you can have some. Yeah, you can have some. Okay, list is growing pretty big. I mean, all you guys are getting less, but whatever, <laughs> right? But finally, the brown stone was torn down, and in its place now sits a pocket park, a small green area that stands out against the surrounding brick and cement, enclosed by a tall black wrought iron fence with matching black iron benches and trash cans. There are several small trees planted and posts that hold doggy disposal bags and trash cans, and there's a sign that bears the name Collier Brothers Park. You know, city officials had attempted to rename the park since the Collier Brothers had done nothing for the neighborhood, <laughs> and it was put to a vote, but in the end, it stayed the Collier Brothers Park, as they had, I guess, left some impression on the New York neighborhood. For instance, Collier Mansion Syndrome is used by firefighters to indicate a house so full of junk they have trouble accessing anyone inside. Or how parents used to use it to scare their children into cleaning their rooms, reminding them that what happened to those brothers could happen to them. Or just lightly using it in comparison, telling someone their house or room is reminiscent of the Collier Mansion. The Colliers left their mark on New York, all right. We're just not sure if it's the one they wanted to leave. What makes this story even more tragic is the relatability of it now. How would the men have adjusted to a modern-day life? A life of quarantine and social distancing? A life lived mostly virtually? Would they have adapted like many of us have, held up in our home of a nest, scared to go out into the rapidly changing world around us? Or would they have seemed strange to us even now? Did they hoard out of mental illness, necessity, or just lack of enthusiasm for life in general. This is the aspect of them that we're not able to gather from the few newspaper articles and YouTube videos done on them. Although they wrote about how the brothers lived, no one ever explored why. And unfortunately, we will never know. Well guys, that's the story of the Collier brothers. I know, it's not murder. And we'll be getting back to the murder and the killing next week. But I wanted to bring you guys something that you wouldn't hear on every other crime podcast, right? And I know this is not necessarily a crime, but this podcast ain't necessarily all about crime. All right, you guys get the point. But anyways, I like the story. I hope you guys did. Let me know if you want to hear more weird shit like this about history. If it, you know, even if the criteria is, oh, Michael, we need somebody to die. Well, you know, people died in this one. It's pretty macabre, really. You imagine going up on that second floor and just seeing a man sitting there like a little mummified monk, just with knees up, still sitting there in that pose, just waiting for his brother. But to be honest, I didn't see their tail turning out any other way. All right, guys. Well, let's check in with Lorne. Let's see what he thinks about the old Collier brothers in this week's Lorne Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. 
breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here, here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. The Collier Brothers, a pair of eccentric and brilliant men, Homer and Langley Collier, uh, were born in the late 19th century. They were sons of immigrants. Um, their father was a doctor, and they studied at Columbia University, obtaining degrees in admiralty law, engineering, and chemistry. Langley Collier be- went on to become an accomplished concert pianist and uh, played at Carnegie Hall. These two had accomplished quite a lot before they became known for what they're famous for, unfortunately, which is becoming two of the world's greatest hoarders. Um, their latter years were, they were shut into their apartment in Brooklyn where they amassed an unbelievable amount of stuff, uh, thousands and thousands of books, an entire Model T, um, statues, art, all kinds of stuff, man. This place became like a museum in itself. Um, and they were known to almost never leave. They had the shutters basically screwed shut. They stopped paying their bills, which I think was a big part of the problem. I think they, they really found freedom in that apartment with each other. I mean, their, their parents had died. It was just the two of them. Um, Homer's health was failing him and Langley was really taking care of him. I thought it was an amazing story of brotherly love and that Langley took such good care of his brother. Not too many brothers would do that, you know, basically right off their whole life to take care of their their sibling like that. And this was following the Great Depression, so I know their neighborhood had really fallen off. It had taken a big hit, and so they just stopped going outside. Um, they created their own little world in there. And I found it to be uh, not as sad as it's kind of made out to be. I think they, they basically said that they had true freedom and they were happy. So if you're happy, I don't see what the problem is. They were taking care of each other. Um, Homer eventually became paralyzed due to inflammatory rheumatism. Um, and you know, they refused to seek help for that because they were honestly more knowledgeable in the medical field than most doctors anyway. So they were tending, they were tending to it themselves. Um, and I think the sad part is the way that Langley would end up dying. They had set up booby traps within the house, uh, very high stacks of books and, stuff uh with basically set up for if authorities came in to try and repossess their home they would get uh piled on by all this stuff and unfortunately langley got caught in his own trap and was later found underneath tons of um stuff in the apartment and homer would die shortly thereafter days later um, from starvation and dehydration and heart disease um, and now where their apartment once stood, it was torn down and there's been a park there since the sixties dedicated to them. I think it's a, it's a cool tribute. Um, there's really large trees that are now there and I think it's kind of, kind of cool. Um, I think they, they have a pretty amazing story. They lived great lives and, um, they should be remembered for more than just the last, you know, what, however many 13, 14 years of their life that they were shut in. Um, uh, but that was their decision. And, um, like I said, I think it's a beautiful story of brotherly love and, uh, yeah, that's my thoughts. I hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. All right, Lauren, thank you so much for that synopsis. Wow. A story of brotherly love. Yeah. I didn't really think about that. I didn't really think about that. To be honest, I feel, I feel kind of weird about that now. Um, I just, I, I kind of take the sheltered 
aspect of it. I think that they were just sheltered and, but they did a lot of stuff though, didn't they? But that doesn't mean mama and daddy didn't set up a lot of that stuff for them and kind of set them up to be successful. You know what I mean? Until they pass. It's just funny that right after mama passes, everything goes to shit. Well, actually right after Homer, Homer goes blind, right? So maybe Homer, if Homer was the caretaker, maybe things would have been different. I, I just think Langley wasn't equipped to take the to take the reins there. He was just not used to being in charge. I don't know. Just something weird about that whole situation. But nonetheless, strange story. I hope you guys liked it. Also, if you didn't catch last week's episode, go check it out. It's Sandu Stories, Chapter 2. It's where it's a podcast, but it's kind of like an old-time radio show. All kinds of cool stuff. In there, voice actors, sound effects, atmospheric moments, all in Sandu Stories. And just as a reminder, next month will be the last free Sandu Stories. From then on, they'll be on patreon.com slash podcast. Speaking of, I want to give a big shout out to a few people who have become patrons in the last couple weeks. I want to give a big shout to Laura Ingham, Rebecca Nadrodsky, S.E.V., Trisha and Jeff Walnifer. Thank you guys so much. Patreon is the wheels of this podcast, guys. If you like what we're doing here, you like the direction we're going, and if you could spare the three bucks a month, greatly appreciate it. For three bucks a month, you get access, early access to these episodes on Thursdays instead of Mondays, and then on Mondays, you get another show that I do called Strange Shorts. And then, of course, after Chapter 3 of Sandu Stories, on the $5 tier, Sandu Stories will be available on there as well. So just something to think about. That's patreon.com slash podcast. But if you guys can't sign up for Patreon right now, I totally understand. Another great way to help the show is to go leave a review like SEV in New Mexico did. It says Casey Kesem is Casey Kesem is missing out. Longtime TCG Patreon creeper and just Patreon Sandu. Not only is it a great podcast, it is also the only place to hear the highly underrated bop, Lorne's Synopsis. Play it on .75 for a mellow, slow dance tune. Speed it up to 1.25 and you've got a club hit. Michael and Lorne are my favorite fellas for true crime and lesser known tales. Keep creeping. <laughs> we appreciate that, SEV. Very much. Also, uh, RJ1 left a five-star review and... Uh, yeah, commented on Payne versus Tennessee. Says, I agree. The victims are my immediate family. The unknown male DNA on the knife is Nick's. They've said it in documents, however, not publicly released as Nick was a minor at the time. Okay, so uh, according to RJ1's review, they're saying that the unknown male DNA on the knife in the Purvis Payne case is a man named Nick's interesting but he was a minor at the time okay so thank you for that that's all alleged and from this review so uh not my opinions guys um but interesting nonetheless thank you very much rj appreciate that appreciate the review as well all right guys that's pretty much it uh go check out our merch truecrimeguys.threadless.com you'll find strange and unexplained designs there as well all right that's pretty much it. Guys, all the links to my sources and everything that I've plugged in this episode are right down below the description, as always. And, as always, remember, be strange, 
just don't be strangers. 